You're listening to the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast with Rebecca Larson. Anne Boleyn has captured our imaginations for centuries. As the second wife of Henry VIII, her story captivates us to consider what could have been. Today, we look at the women who served Anne and her relationship with them. To enlighten us on this topic is return guest, Sylvia Barbara Soberton. Sylvia just announced that this summer she will be releasing her book called Ladies in Waiting, Women Who Served Anne Boleyn. Sylvia, welcome back. Hello, I'm very excited to be here to talk about my new book. I am so excited to have you on the show because this is the first time that you and I have had the opportunity to speak. Yes, finally. (laughs) (laughs) After all of these years, we finally get to talk. I've been reading Sylvia's books since way back. When did your first one come out? 2015? Um, yes, 2015. Yes, yeah. uh, my um, the Forgotten Tudor Women series was published that year, and that was where I started with you. So I have known you since 2015, and this is the first opportunity that we've had to speak to one another. So today, like I said, we're going to talk about the women who served Anne Boleyn because they really they had stories of their own. We don't hear about them often enough. And so today you're going to help us out a little bit because, like you said, you've researched and written several books on Tudor women, including the first one, The Forgotten Tudor Women. What made you decide to dive into the world of Anne Boleyn's ladies-in-waiting? Well, my fascination with the Tudors started with Anne. I guess it starts with Anne for everyone because she has such a fascinating story. And my favorite period is the decade of Anne's rise and fall from 1526 to 1536. I was always fascinated with the transition the ladies-in-waiting had to make from serving Queen Catherine of Aragon to serving Anne Boleyn. Anne's position at court during her rise was quite anomalous because she was neither a mistress nor yet a wife. She was a queen-in-waiting, and the women at court had to shift their loyalties from one queen to another, and that's a fascinating subject to explore. One question that I have for you before we really get into this is, how did Anne choose the women who would serve in her household? Mm-hmm. So because she was very unpopular from the, from the beginning, we can say, she surrounded herself with the women who were her friends or family. So the women who served her uh, in the beginning were her closest friends. And in 1532... Uh, There is a list of ladies-in-waiting, of ladies who were serving Anne. They were uh, uh, recorded in the the list of the New Year's gifts. And the ladies who were with the Lady Anne, quote, uh, there were five of them. And they were her her friends, women who would later also um, transfer to her royal household. Um, So, yes, she she picked them based on her own personal relationship with them. Would we recognize any of those names? Oh, of course. There is uh, Marjorie Horseman, who was one of her most favored maids of honor. She's also played some role in her downfall, but we will get into that later. Um, uh, there was Anne Savage, who, uh, who was present, actually, during Anne Boleyn's wedding to Henry VIII. This, there was, it was a secret wedding, and she bore up her train. Um, there was uh, Anne Jocelyn, who is a very little-known character, but I have uh, discovered something very interesting about her. So yes, these women, uh, some of them are known, others are not so much, uh, not so well-known to to um, readers today, 
but I hope that my book will highlight their roles in Anne's story, because that's really what I wanted to do, to tell her story from uh, the perspective of her ladies-in-waiting through their eyes. I'm curious, Sylvia, do we know of these ladies that she had who were closest to her, did she have uh, a best friend or a confidant? Mm -hmm. So there is a letter that Anne Boleyn wrote to her friend, to Lady Bridget Wiltshire, who was her childhood friend. Um, and she said that next to her own mother, she knows no other woman whom she loves best. So Lady Bridget Wiltshire is, uh, by Anne's own admission, her own closest friend. But we know very, very little about Lady Bridget Wiltshire because um, she was very often pregnant. And so she often stayed away from court, you know, because she was busy bearing children, raising them. She makes a quick, uh, you know, a brief appearance in Anne's story in 1530 when she is uh, recorded as Anne's lady-in-waiting. She was also, um, well, actually, her deathbed confession appears during Anne Boleyn's trial in 1536. So that's really interesting because she was dead in 1536, but her deathbed confession somewhat somehow made its way um, to Anne's trial. Also, um, in the last will of Bridget's father, there is um, a line where he says that uh, he's, he left his uh, ring for remembrance uh, for Thomas Boleyn, for Anne's father. So that's quite a link, you know, that links the two families, that they were quite close to each other. Um, they lived close by uh, in Kent also. So, um, you know, there is a lot of uh, things that we know, but a lot of things that we also don't know about their relationship. But if I have, if I had to pick one woman whom I would say that Anne Boleyn was closest to, I would say it was Bridget Wiltshire, because Anne said so herself. But I would also say that she had later in her time, you know, as, um, as queen, she also had close friends, you know, women whom she considered friends. I've never heard of Bridget before, so I'm, I'm glad that you're going to be bringing her story to light a little bit. That's great. So we will be probably talking about her, too, today, because, you know, she played a role in Anne's downfall, even if from behind the grave. <laughs> OK, so let's kind of get into that a little bit, because you would think that the Queen's ladies would have been extremely loyal to her. So what happened? Can you expand on how her ladies were involved in her downfall? Yes. So that's a very interesting story because we have, as usual is the case with treason trials in Henry VIII's England, there was an official statement of what happened and what really happened. So Thomas Cromwell wrote to the king's ambassadors in France that Anne's ladies-in-waiting stepped forward with accusations against her. And also the poem of Lancelot de Carle, a secretary to the French ambassador who resided in London at the time, recorded that a certain lady of the court was abbraided by her brother for living in sinful behavior. And this lady wanted her faults to be redeemed and said that the queen was even a bigger, bigger sinner than herself. And she said that if you don't um, want to believe my assurances, you can get the story from Mark. And Mark was Mark Smeaton, um, the musician who was accused as Anne Boleyn's lover. And that's really it's how it all started, according to the official sources, of course, according to Cromwell. 
and the king's councillors. And this, um, this lady was identified as Elizabeth Somerset, Countess of Worcester. So how do we know that it was her? Well, uh, there was a letter, a series of letters by John Hussey, who was a servant of the Lyle family. The, the Lyles lived in Calais and uh, they managed their estates and relationships through correspondence and most frequently with John Hussey, their London agent. And so Hussey wrote that um, he mentioned the identities of the Queen's ladies in waiting who had accused her. And he said that the first accusers were the Lady Worcester, the nun Cabham, with one maid more. Um, and he was pretty sure that Lady Worcester was the first, first ground. So this Lady Worcester, who was she? She was, uh, she was Elizabeth Somerset, Countess of Worcester. She was Anne Boleyn's lady-in-waiting and quite a close friend because when Anne was arrested, uh, she said she much lamented my Lady of Worcester. And when one lady who accompanied her in the tower asked, well, why, why was that? Why, why did she, you know, why, why would she lament you? And she said but that it was because her child did not stir in her body for the sorrow she took for me. So this rather emotional outpouring proves just how close, close a friend Anne believed the Countess was. So yeah, this is about Anne Worcester, then the, the identity of this um, Nan Cabham uh, remains unknown. She might have been Anne Brooke, Baroness Cabham, who attended Anne's coronation in 1533. But sadly, her involvement and relationship with Anne are shrouded in mystery. How terrible it must have felt for Anne to know that it was her own women who had turned against her. I can't imagine. Well, it was what Cromwell said happened, because Cromwell had to build this official um, line, you know, of what happened. But I think that the ladies-in-waiting, they had to say something. And we have um, bits and pieces of evidence of what might have been said, of what Anne, you know, what was she joking about when she was with her women? Um, what was she doing um, with when, when men came into her apartments? And so these bits and pieces of gossip um, uh, was shared by her ladies-in-waiting, but I think they shared that in good faith, you know, they were not sharing that to betray her, but it was um, made, you know, the story was spread so that Anne Boleyn would be, would be depicted as this, you know, lecherous, adulterous queen, and that even her own ladies in waiting, waiting couldn't, you know, um, hide her immoral behavior anymore. But that was just the official stance that what Cromwell wanted people to believe. And this, um, this John Hussey, you know, who, whom we mentioned before, he said that everything was so discreetly spoken at court that he couldn't, uh, that he had problems um, in learning what exactly happened because people were asking each other, like, what happened? Why, why is Anne Boleyn in the tower? What's gonna happen next? So I think that her ladies-in-waiting were very scared to, uh, um, to be interrogated because they didn't know uh, what was it all about. And there is interesting evidence uh, from Anne Boleyn's vice chamberlain, Edward Bainton, who interrogated the women. And he said that one of them, Marjorie Horseman, Anne Boleyn's maid of honor, didn't want to cooperate because of the great friendship that existed between her and Anne Boleyn. So it gives us a little bit of an insight of what women may have 
thought about Anne Boleyn's downfall and, and, and the whole investigation because, you know, Marjorie was so close to Anne that she didn't really want to say anything that uh, were potentially damaging to her royal mistress. One of the ladies um, in her household who was really vilified by history was her sister-in-law, Jane Boleyn. Mm-hmm. What? Can yes. you <laughs> tell us more about her involvement and what you've learned? Okay, so Jane Boleyn is traditionally believed to have accused her husband, George Boleyn, of incest with Anne, but there is no evidence to that effect. Well, the first appearance of Jane's involvement comes from much later. It was in a work by George Wyatt, grandson of the poet Thomas Wyatt. And Wyatt calls her a wicked wife, accuser of her own husband, even to the seeking of his own blood. But the contemporary accounts do not name Lady Rochford as the star witness, and she only appears in the context of a mysterious piece of paper with Anne's statement about the king's sexual prowess. The imperial ambassador, Chapuis, uh, reported that Anne confided in her sister-in-law that the king was impotent and had neither the skill nor the virility to satisfy a woman. Ouch, that was pretty, uh, pretty an explosive statement, I yeah. would say. Um, and during his trial, also, George exclaimed that on the evidence of only one woman, you are willing to believe this great evil of me. And sometimes scholars uh, suggest that he was referring to his own wife. But I think that if he were referring to his own wife, he would have said so. Um, also, if Jane Boleyn was the star witness, um, she would have been mentioned as, as such by John Hussey, whom we mentioned before. And also, I think that the Imperial Ambassador Chapuis would have made a great deal about that, you know, about, you know, her own sister-in-law came with this shocking, uh, explosive evidence against Anne. But none of the contemporary evidence uh, that we have uh, points to her as the star witness. Uh, we, we've said before it was Lady Wooster. Um, and, so, and so Jane Boleyn suffered quite a lot uh, of, from from historians, but I think it's thanks to George Wyatt who <laughs> who who said so. He, he you know he made her basically into into a culprit um, because because he couldn't have made a culprit out of Thomas Cromwell or 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 even Henry VIII. You know because I think that the real uh, we should blame Henry VIII for Anne Boleyn's downfall, not not her women. I think I think they didn't really have a choice but to cooperate and said what they saw. And it was, you know, misconstrued to mean that she was, that Anne was, you know, this adulteress and, and that, that she was a, 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 had loose morals. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think that she was, I think that, you know, today historians believe that she was framed. And so if, if, we, if we believe that Anne was framed, so also her ladies in waiting um, were not guilty of betraying her trust, I would say. Let's go back a little bit to what you'd said previously about Bridget Wiltshire and mm -hmm. her deathbed testimony. How does that work into Anne Boleyn's trial? Well, it's quite puzzling, isn't it? Because Lady Bridget Wiltshire, um, she was dead in 1536. So surprise, you know, her deathbed confession. How, how did it how did it made its way to Cromwell? Um, well, there is um, a note by Judge John Spellman who wrote that um, this Bridget Wingfield became, suddenly she became ill and she left 
her deathbed statement or confession about Anne, um, and that she shared the same tendencies as Anne Boleyn. And that's that's really interesting, you know, because Anne Boleyn was accused of adultery. So the implication is that if Bridget shared the same tendencies, that perhaps she she was also uh, committing adultery. But I I went further, you know, a little bit further in researching her life because she usually appears in connection to Anne Boleyn's downfall, just as a you know as a footnote, as a footnote, as a as a name just to be said and forgotten later on. Um, and so I discovered that her husband, in his last will, um, believed that she was virtuous, and he um, and he uh, ordered, uh, you know, her to raise their children and his nephews virtuously. So I think that, um, she, you know, whatever the the deathbed confession implicates, and whatever that Judge John, um, Judge John Spellman's note implicates, that she shared the same tendencies as Anne. I think that um, I think that she was, uh, you know, just pulled into it, maelstrom of events. Uh, you know, she was dead, so <laughs> that's pretty pretty funny that she would be, you know, that her name would be invoked. But my view is that if she said something, if there was indeed a deathbed confession, which I don't think there was, I think it was just something that uh, was conveniently used against Anne. But even Chapuis doesn't mention this deathbed confession. And he was pretty much involved in, you know, uh, observing everything that was happening. So so it's really quite puzzling, you know, it's it's quite puzzling because she was dead and I don't, I can't imagine how would her deathbed confession be used against Anne at this point, unless it was something about Anne's early life, perhaps. But that's just a guess, you know, mm. that's not... Uh, uh, that's just I guess I would say um, that that it may have involved her early life, but we we just don't know because this deathbed confession that you know is not uh, didn't survive. Perhaps it was even destroyed mm -hmm. after Anne's trial because so little evidence survives survives from that period. We we have to just you know kind of piece it all together from various sources, from mm -hmm. letters, from chronicles, um, from from Cromwell you know, who was trying very hard to, um, you know, paint Anne Boleyn in, 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 uh, in bad light, I would say, but later contradicts himself when he said that she was very courageous when she went to her death. So, you know, it's all very puzzling. And as I would, I, I think I would quote John Hussey here, who was at court at the time, who said that everything was so discreetly spoken that he could learn, hardly learn anything of substance. It's so interesting because we know the Tudors as a whole um, had no problem finding ways to get rid of people who upset them or were in their way or whatever reason that they had. Well, yes, exactly. I think that the case with Anne Boleyn's downfall is that Henry VIII wanted a divorce, but, you know, um, divorce, by divorce, of course, we mean annulment because divorce uh, in modern meaning of this word in Tudor England, it didn't exist. Um, so Henry VIII wanted an annulment, and he said to Cromwell, probably that's my guess, you know, help me, help me, help me to get out of this marriage. And Cromwell started thinking, you know, oh, what should I do? And there is evidence that he wanted to, um, 
look into AMST past, perhaps the, use the contract, the pre-contract with um, Henry Percy, the Earl of Northumberland. We know that Anne Boleyn had a relationship with him in the past, but, you know, uh, Percy denies it. He says, no, there was no pre-contract. Um, uh, so, so Cromwell is like, oh, I can't use that. And then suddenly, quite suddenly and shockingly also, in late April of 1536, Anne Boleyn argues with Henry Norris, saying that famous comment about dead men's shoes. You know, she says, oh, oh, if anything bad happens to the king, you want to have me. And it's really quite, it's quite shocking how it all spiraled out of control. And Cromwell used that to arrest Anne and build heavy innuendos on her conversations with Norris and with other courtiers from her circle. So, so that's really how it all went down. I think that uh, it clearly, clearly shows that Anne Boleyn's downfall, it wasn't, you know, planned for a very long time by, by Cromwell. He was looking for ways of annulling the marriage and then Anne, you know, argues with Norris mm -hmm. and, and then he says, oh, oh, then I can, you know, investigate her ladies in waiting, see what they have to say. And the things that they say, they were, they were not treasonous in, them, in itself, uh, but if you want to put a spin on it, then yes, these things became suddenly very dangerous, you know, like, oh, Anne Boleyn's brother, he joked about uh, whether Elizabeth was Henry VIII's daughter, and then, oh, Jane Boleyn, she says that Anne told her that the king had neither the skill nor the virility to satisfy a woman, so what, what does that imply, you know, so that's very interesting to think about it. Um, in, when you when you when you actually think that um, when you as, when you start assuming that Anne Boleyn's downfall was just um, you know a case of you know conversations gossip you know everything put together and you know Cromwell made it into a case against Anne uh, so it's quite shocking it was shocking for for that time and it is still shocking when we look back because you know we think that people were plotting Anne Boleyn's death because, you know, she ended up on the scaffold, she was executed. But um, I think that the evidence points to the fact that, that the people who plotted against Anne, they plotted her, uh, the annulment of her marriage, they thought that she will be dismissed from court. Um, and uh, when it all, you know, spiraled out of control, I think even they were, they were surprised because um, those who plotted, they, they referred to, you know, Anne being dismissed, um, her marriage being annulled, um, and then, you know, even Lady Mary, when she was approached by, by Shapley, she said, oh, yes, I, I give my blessing to this, you know, divorce, basically, to, to paraphrase what she said. And so when, when Anne is executed, I think everyone is shocked. Everyone is shocked because it's unprecedented, you know, a queen executed that's unheard of. Right. Yeah, that was brand new to them. I do want to go mm -hmm. back a little bit and talk about a piece of her downfall that I'm not really all that familiar with. And I'm sure there's some super Anne Boleyn fans listening right now who know all of this, but humor me a little bit. On the day of her arrest, could you fill in some of the details? What happened? Where was it? And which ladies were with her on that day? Do we know? Mm -hmm. Yes. So, well, Anne Boleyn was arrested on 2nd May 1536. And uh, 
it took her by surprise, probably, because she wasn't expected to be to be arrested, to be taken to the tower. But she was, uh, you know, she was acquainted with the charges that were lodged against her. And she was uh, taken by barge to the tower in broad daylight, as, as uh, one observer noted. Um, and so she was very scared. She was shocked. She didn't expect that. And when she was... Uh, when she finally reached the tower, um, you know, she saw this this uh, tall guy, William Kingston, the constable of the tower, and she asked him, Mr. Kingston, am I going to, into a dungeon? And he says, no, you are going into the apartment that you stayed at during your coronation. And she kind of falls down weeping and she says, oh, Jesus, it's too good for me. And you can really see her anguish in this early hours of her arrest um she was you know i mean she was shocked i'm shocked that that she was arrested that that it all happened um because i think that uh when you write about history you have to put yourself yourself in the mind of the person you're writing about so today we are looking back with hindsight you know we know how this story ended but they didn't they didn't know how it will end and so their pain is real. When I was writing it, I felt that pain and I felt that anguish. And so um, to return to your question also, which ladies accompanied Anne to the tower? Um, well, there were four ladies with her and she said uh, upon her arrest, she actually complained to Kingston. She said that the king knew what he was doing when he put such two about her as, as my lady Boleyn and Mistress Coffin for they could tell her nothing of her father or anything else and that she defied them all. And Mistress Coffin, whom, she, whom Anne referred to, um, she slept on a pallet bed in the Queen's bed chamber and proved herself to be very useful to Kingston because she reported that, because he reported that, um, you know, she told him basically everything, every single outburst that Anne had, uh, you know, she, she reported it. And this Mistress Coffin, she was, Margaret Coffin, the wife of Anne Boleyn's master of the horse. I think that she may have also been the unnamed lady who spied for Ambassador Chapuis, because Chapuis refers to a woman who brought him information, so it could, it could have been her. Um, also, the, the, the lady Boleyn, um, whom Anne referred to, well, her identity um, has not been satisfactorily established by historians, because Anne had two aunts, uh, who married her paternal uncles, um, and they were thus known as Ladies Bolling. There was Elizabeth Bolling, uh, whose maiden name was Wood, and there was Elizabeth Bolling, whose name maiden name was Tempest. But this um, Lady Bolling, I think, was um, Elizabeth Bolling, who was the wife of Sir James Bolling, who was served, who, whom, who served as Anne Boleyn's chancellor. And uh, also a Lady Boleyn took part in Anne's coronation procession in 1533. So I think that Elizabeth Boleyn's uh, position as uh, wife of Anne's chancellor um, makes her the most plausible candidate. Um, so another woman also who is present with Anne in the tower is um, Kingston's wife, Mary Kingston, um, who was, uh, she was, in her late 40s or early 50s, so she was a very experienced lady-in-waiting. 
She, um, her career as lady-in-waiting started in 1509 when she served as Catherine of Aragon's uh, lady during her coronation. And she was also very loyal to Lady Mary. And we know that following Anne Boleyn's execution, Lady Kingston visited Lady Mary. So I think that she gave her um, you know, an eyewitness account of what Anne said during her last days. So Mary knew exactly uh, pretty much everything that went behind uh, the closed doors. Um, some historians also say that Mrs. Orchard, Anne's old nurse or governess, was present with Anne in the tower and that she accompanied her to her trial. Um, she supposedly shrieked out dreadfully when Anne was sentenced to death. But here's the thing, Kingston mentions no such lady in the tower. Um, I think that if a woman who raised her served her in the tower, Anne would not complain to, to Kingston that, um, that king, the king appointed such servants as she never loved. I think it's very unlikely. And also uh, the contemporary chronicler, Sh Charles Risley, mentioned two women who accompanied Anne to, the, to her trial, the ladies Kingston and Boleyn, and there was no Mrs. Orchard. And so this Mrs. Orchard, I think, uh, I traced her to um, William Burke's uh, book. In, he was, you know, a 19th century historian, but he took so many liberties with his with his work that even his contemporaries uh, criticized him for that. So uh, he's not the most reliable source. Uh, he, he he listed no sources in his book, and so so I think that this Mrs. Orchard, if she existed. She, she definitely wasn't with Anne in the tower. So I think it's time to put this myth to rest. While Anne was languishing in the tower, we have to think about the upcoming queen as well, who, I don't know, of course, I'm referring to Jane Seymour. I think most people have a good idea of what my impression is of most of the Seymours. <laughs> but I would be interested um, to hear from you, Sylvia, as, as what you saw as Jane's involvement in Anne's demise. How much did she know, too, of what was going on? Mm -hmm. Well, so Jane Seymour was not new uh, at court. When she became Anne Boleyn's maid of honor, um, you know, Chapuis made it clear that Jane served as maid in Catherine of Aragon's household. So she was pretty experienced, I would say. Uh, she knew ways of the court. Um, Chapuis even, even joked, you know, that, oh, she may not even be a virgin if she's so long at court and she's at this age because she was about 28 years old when it all started. And, um, well, Jane Seymour, she was pretty active in plotting Anne downfall, I would say. But we don't know how much um, it came out of her own, you know, volition, or how much was she used by others, uh, you know, by Anne Boleyn's enemies. Because there was this conservative faction at court, and the head of that faction was Sir Nicholas Carew, uh, the master of the horse. Um, and so, you know, Carew was the main plotter, I would say. And uh, Jane uh, was instructed by him and by, by others what to do, uh, how to talk to the king. And, you know, she was also instructed not to sleep with the king uh, until he makes her his wife or until he promises her to make her his wife. And so, you know, Jane's, uh, you know, she, she uses ambulance tactic, or if it was a tactic, 
but you know she refuses like Anne refused before uh, because it worked for Anne and Jane perhaps thought that oh if it worked for Anne then maybe it will work for me and um, there's this woman at court Gertrude Courtenay Marchioness of Exeter who uh, you know basically she takes Jane Seymour under her wing and she um, uh, she probably talks to her because she's also a very experienced lady in waiting. Uh, she talks to her. Uh, she, you know, the conversations that the two, the two of them had were probably very interesting, but we don't know what exactly they were talking about. But Gertrude, she was, um, she observed and she informed the imperial ambassador Chapuy about what was going on at court at this time. And so she she informed him about this. Um, incident where Henry VIII sent Jane a purse filled with money and when Jane uh, fell on her knees and said oh I can't accept this gift because you know please tell the king that when I'm married honorably then I will accept the gift of money and that was very smart on Jane's part and I'm wondering you know how much how much it came from from her or how much you know she was said what exactly she should do um, um, so uh, I think that Jane didn't know that Anne Boleyn was to be executed. I think that many people believe it. Uh, but if we look at evidence, you know, people say Anne Boleyn is going to be dismissed. Anne Boleyn is going to be, you know, her marriage is going to be annulled. So I think that the expectation is that uh, there will be this huge scandal because, you know, Henry VIII is going to annul his marriage, sent Anne Boleyn away from court in disgrace, much like Catherine of Aragon had been sent away from court, and that probably Anne Boleyn will, would, you know, live out her days uh, somewhere, somewhere in the countryside, like Catherine of Aragon before her. Um, and, uh, you know, it was unprecedented. Nobody could guess what was going to happen. And I think that the only person who knew uh, what was going to happen was Henry VIII himself. I think he planned this. I think he he knew that you know the moment Anne Boleyn was arrested, I think it was a foregone conclusion. Uh, she had no chance to uh, get away alive from the tower. Although, again, there's evidence that Anne believed so. That when Thomas Cranmer, the, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, visited her, visited her in the tower on 16th May, uh, she was in hope of life. So she, she, she probably believed that she was maybe getting away, uh, that she wouldn't be executed. Um, but I think that her, her hope uh, vanished when on 17th of May, 1536, five men who were accused as her lovers uh, were executed. Um, so I think that she, at that point she understood and she believed that she was going to die as well. Um, and, you know, if, if we ponder Jane Seymour's involvement in all of that, she was at some point removed from court by Henry VIII so that she wasn't um, subjected to maybe some gossip that was circulating at court. Um, um, so my, my view of, of her involvement is that she was, yes, plotting very actively, but she was plotting Anne's you know, annulment and her removal from court and not her execution. And I think that everybody must have been so surprised when Anne uh, went to the scaffold because, you know, there's this interesting 
um, um, evidence from one of the observers who was a hostile to Anne Boleyn, but nevertheless, it's an interesting source. And he says that when Anne mounted the scaffold, that she was looking back at the women who uh, came with her and that she was quite um, exhausted and amazed. And, you know, sometimes it's interpreted that when she was looking back, she was looking back to see if perhaps royal messenger was coming her way with pardon from Henry VIII. So, um, you know, it's quite emotional to think that even in this, uh, in, in her last moments, she hoped that perhaps Henry VIII would, would rescue her because, because how could he execute his, his wife? How could he execute the mother of his own daughter? Um, that was unprecedented. That was shocking. And, you know, I have goosebumps even, even right. talking about it. Yeah, that's probably the part of her story that affects people so much. Just to imagine yourself in that situation, how would you feel? I think that's the, mm -hmm. the, the big thing there. Let's talk a little bit then about the end, those final moments of her life, and she is on the scaffold. Who are the ladies that are there with her? Are they the same ones that were in the tower? Well, here's the thing. We just don't know because... Um, the names of the women who accompanied Anne to the scaffold are not recorded, sadly. But the eyewitnesses who attended Anne's uh, execution and wrote about it mentioned four ladies accompanying Anne to the scaffold, and these ladies were young. And the women who attended Anne in the tower were by no means young. Uh, they were either in their 40s or 50s, so I don't think that a 16th century observer would look at these women in their 40s or 50s and refer to them as young, unless they were really good looking. Um, <laughs> but my belief, <laughs> but my belief is that um, uh, perhaps one of the four young ladies who attended Anne Boleyn on the scaffold was Bessie Holland, Elizabeth Holland, who served as Anne Boleyn's maid of honor from at least 1532. And she was also during, uh, present um, during her coronation procession. And she, you know, she appears in the records, in court records throughout Anne's time as queen. And it's interesting, interesting that her married name and that of her husband uh, appears in, uh, in one of the prayer books that are associated with Anne Boleyn. And it is the prayer book that is currently preserved in the British Library. And it is the, the same prayer book where Anne Boleyn wrote um, to Henry VIII, uh, you know, the following verse, um, this, by daily proof, you shall me find to be to you both loving and kind. And so I think that this inscription uh, makes it more um, possible that this prayer book was perhaps a wedding gift to Bessie from somebody, um, perhaps who received it from Anne and you know my guess would be that Anne gave it either to Bessie herself uh, or to perhaps Mar Mary Howard Duchess of Richmond who was Anne Boleyn's cousin and a very close uh, uh, friend and confidant also because she's she's said to have been one of uh, the chief and principal mates about Anne um, that's according to John Fox uh, later in the century um, so it's it's interesting I think that maybe Perhaps Bessie Holland was one of the ladies because of this, you know, connection to her, to Anne Boleyn's prayer book. But then again, it could have been also Mary Howard because, she, you know, she was so close to Anne throughout Anne's life. So perhaps her, and she was also young in her teens. 
Uh, it could have been Mary Shelton, Anne's cousin, um, could have been Margaret Douglas. She was also in her you know, teens, early 20s. Um, so, so there were quite a lot of women who um, were young at the time of Anne Boleyn's uh, execution and who could have been you know, selected by Anne uh, you know that you know perhaps Henry VIII allowed her to 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 select the women whom she liked and uh, whose company she wanted in her last hours. Uh, but we just don't know. And it, they could have been the same women, you know, uh, who attended and in the tower. Although I personally think that that's unlikely because they were described as young, and I don't think that the women who were with her in the tower. Uh, matched that description. To wrap up our conversation today, Sylvia, I am very curious to learn who did you find as the most interesting of Anne's ladies during your research? Oh, <laughs> oh that's a great question, actually. <laughs> um, you know what? I think that when, when I, you know, the, the idea that came into my head in the, in the beginning when I wanted to uh, get to know them you know, the sketches by Hans Holbein, these women looking at you, uh, looking at the viewers so directly, you know, beautiful ladies dressed in this, you know, in, in, in Tudor gowns, uh, bejeweled, you know, I wanted to know their stories. And the thing is that every single one of them had an interesting story to tell, but I had to work really hard to piece their stories together um, and, you know, I, I would say that if I had to pick just one, I wouldn't because all of them were so interesting. Um, and it's quite heart-wrenching to, to, to think, you know, that they were uh, um, forced to uh, testify against Anne. And it's, it's um, heartwarming, I would say, to, to think that at least one of them, Marjorie Horseman, didn't want to testify. And I think maybe maybe she wasn't the only one. Um, so you know, Marjorie is pretty interesting character because she she's apparently close with Anne throughout Anne's uh, time as queen. She she knows what Anne likes to eat. She knows what she likes to dress in. Um, she she works with um, the great wardrobe. She orders uh, pieces of clothing for Anne. She plans her outfits. She talks to um, John Hasty, whom we mentioned before, uh, because Lady Lyle was very um, active in trying to, uh, um, you know, get into Anne's good graces. And, you know, I would say that Marjorie Horseman appears quite a lot in Anne's time as queen. And um, I would say that, you know, she, she was very interesting. And interesting thing about her is that she despite the fact that she didn't want to testify against Anne, she uh, transferred, she was transferred to Jane Seymour's household and together with her husband, because she married in January of 1537, together with her husband, they were made um, custodians and keepers of the Queen's jewels. So that was a mark of privilege. Um, so it's interesting why she, she, she was given this, uh, this you know, highly privileged uh, role at court, I think that it was because she was, you know, just a, a good person, a lady who stay away perhaps from gossip, who was an honorable woman. 
and uh, yes, I, I think I think I, I, I would pick pick her as my favorite um, because of all of the things that I've said. I, I think she was she was uh, an interesting character. So your book, Ladies in Waiting, Women Who Served Anne Boleyn, will be coming out soon. Can you give us some details? Well, it's going to be released this summer, and I'm very excited because I work hard. I work very hard to um, piece their stories together and see how how uh, how they tie to Anne Boleyn's story. And um, I think that um, viewers will be, I think viewers and readers, um, will be interested to learn that I've debunked several myths that are still repeated about Anne and her ladies. Um, I've also did some research in the archives. So there are interesting bits and pieces uh, that I think will contribute to our understanding of Anne Boleyn and her household. I'm looking forward to the book as, as well as I'm sure many of the listeners are. I will include links in the show notes for Sylvia on social media. And um, once we know more about the book coming out, I will make sure to let everybody know. Sylvia, thank you so much for being on the show with me today. Thank you so much for having me. It was so much fun. And that concludes this episode of the show. A special thank you to all of my patrons, but a very warm welcome to my newest patrons. Mrs. Michael B., Holly M., Megan, Destiny W, Kathy J, Deanna S, Victoria B, and Laura W. Thank you so much for all of your support. If you're a listener of the show, whether long time or brand new, maybe you might consider becoming a patron as well. Head over to patreon.com slash tutorsdynasty to check out all of the tiers available to you. Some will give you options to things that others won't, so be sure to check out all of the details. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.